0: It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Please keep your Bibles open with me there to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As uh, this morning we are beginning a a new sermon series, I'll come back to that in just a a moment. But for now, I want to draw our attention to a vision that I shared with you as partners in the gospel here at Cross Point Coast just a few months ago a vision for maturity. A maturity that's the sort of maturity in the midst of a congregation that grows up into a 50-year-old church who has been faithful to seek maturity over the course of those years. That's grown not only in number, but also has grown in wisdom and understanding together as a body. A wisdom and understanding that works its way into our life together before our God and in light of His gospel filled with His Spirit We just finished a sermon series through the whole of the Scriptures, the History of Redemption series, and I encourage you to consistently, thoroughly, and deeply study, know, remember the Scriptures. Last week, we ended our time with this application, an an encouragement. I want to re-encourage you to, to find a Bible that can fit in your hand easily that you could carry all day long. I actually put a few examples of those from very inexpensive to very, very expensive uh, on, the, um, on the podcast last week in the notes that are there. Look at it, if you don't have one already, that you could carry with you everywhere, that you could actually know and be constantly reminded and remember with you everywhere you go, just as Deuteronomy 6 would instruct us encouragement to to mature in light of the gospel that we have given to us in the scriptures. And now in February, we're going to begin again in Romans. We're going to look to chapter two of Romans. And and so by a broad understanding of scripture in the series that we're just coming out of that we find in BibleTogether.com and the History of Redemption series, and then all the way to a careful study of biblical doctrine as we find it in that careful study that we're going into again in Romans. I hope that you can see an effort that is being made to bring us to maturity right here in this pulpit. There's a labor that's taking place that that we are participating in in a congregation right here and right now. But From uh, this broad, sweeping understanding of the Scriptures to a a deep dive into the doctrines of the Scriptures in Romans, Uh, in coming to January, I thought it might be a good opportunity for us to offer some sort of guardrails against an error and an encouragement in our mission together as we pursue maturity. So in an effort toward maturity as a congregation, we can't overlook our responsibility, listen, to grow in immaturity. Now what do we mean by that? We should at all times be seeking to bring into our fellowship, into our number, those who were lost and perhaps are even remaining young in their faith. Just as 1 John chapter 1 verse 3. Go and look at that sometime this today and we proclaim a gospel so that the immature may also have fellowship with us, even as our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we are growing in a fellowship with God as God brings those who are new to that fellowship into our midst. And this way, what we'll grow in is in maturity in our proclamation by increasing our fellowship with those who are new and perhaps immature in the faith. Do you see where I'm going with this? The caution and encouragement is this. The goal of our maturity is not a perfect church. Isn't like some sort of snotty-nosed, self-righteous, perfect church that has managed to get everything together and can't bear having uh, uh, spending our time actually reaching out to anyone who might be needy in our community because then they might taint our perfection. Do you see? It may seem silly, but examine your heart. That's what works inside of us so easy. That if we can, we begin to view ourselves as, as some sort of mature church, we can begin to view ourselves as those who need to erect walls around us to maintain our maturity. But that's not actually maturity at all. It's actually self-righteousness, which is, is actually immaturity, and in desperate need of the invasive force of the gospel to be proclaimed in our midst. So, in this little sermon series, we're going to spend time considering what it looks like to celebrate and remember the gospel as a church, to celebrate by the Lord, His Word, and His Spirit that He would bring us into maturity, a maturity that is actively engaged in mission in our community. Let's pray that the Lord would do that in these next couple days. Lord, I pray that in this January you would offer clarity and conviction to us that we would grow, that we would even grow in the perfections that are revealed by our God. But Lord, we would grow in such a way that we see that you have come to save sinners. And we would confess with Paul, I'm the foremost. I am in need of your grace. Surely those in our community are in need of the same grace. Lord, would you do this work in our hearts through your word in these weeks. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to begin a simple three-week series. It's, It's a topical series of expository sermons, all right? Are you with me? We want to share what we call our three-eye way of living, an intercede, invest, invite way of living. That's a topical idea. You're not going to find the three-eye life somewhere in the Bible, but you will find these things in the Scripture, uh, and, and we're going to go to those texts and consider carefully what does the Word have to say to us this morning about interceding For those that we encounter in our community. In our partnership course, we often discuss the the contribution rhythm. Uh, And and when we come to that contribution rhythm, we use a simple tool to aid us in gospel proclamation. It's an encouragement to intercede for, to invest in, and to invite others to know Jesus Christ. Again, to to enter into the fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son. Intercede means to simply to, to pray for, to bring a specific person by name before the Lord God so that so you can actually tell a person, I, I named your name before that holy name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to invest means to spend time with, to encourage, to, to help in a time of need, or simply to enjoy life together with someone that you're praying for. And to invite means simply to invite perhaps to join us in a celebration service, but it means so much more to that, and we'll unpack that in week three. It means to invite into your life, to actually get to know him, to actually get to know her. It means, most importantly, it means to invite to know Jesus. Our invitation is not complete if we have not made Christ known and in an invitation to enter into his fellowship. We encourage every gospel partner at Cross Point Coast to always have three people In our lives, that we are interceding, investing, and inviting to know Jesus. As we begin this series, I ask you, who does the Lord bring to your mind? Even as we are going through that right now, there's a chance that someone just came into your mind. Like, yeah, like that person. Well, write that down. That's probably almost more important than any of the sermon notes you might take, but not more important than the text itself. But that this text that we read, and we'll look at in a moment, would be applied to the person that came to your mind. Who does the Lord bring to your mind? Perhaps he or she is already here with us, like has already received an invitation to to gather with us right here. Maybe a friend, a coworker, or a son or a daughter sitting right next to you. You're here this morning because someone loves you and has been praying for you, not only to invite you to, to sit with them this morning in this gathering, but you have been invited here that you would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would hear of grace and that the Lord would, just as the one who invited you, would also encounter you and your need, and particular your need for forgiveness and for grace and that you would know with us the new life that we can have together in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? What if I could say that exact thing next week and someone that you invited last this week Would be with us. What if that could be said in your community group this week? And someone that you've invited into that fellowship would be with you and would hear the beauty of the grace that's being worked out in the midst of a congregation as we gather and as we scatter. Now, in our text this morning in 1 Timothy, if you look actually back just a little bit before, in chapter 1, verse 15, we actually looked at this a few weeks ago in our History of Redemption series, sort of a culmination of where the story has been going. In chapter 1, verse 15, it says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This verse sets the tone and the purpose of First Timothy. I go back to that so we would understand why we have what is before us here in chapter two. So when we come to our scripture this morning, and at the beginning of chapter two, we see that the first instruction in in keeping with the purpose that God has revealed that Christ has come into the world to save sinners is first of all then, right? That's what it says. You following along with me? First of all then, I urge you, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. It's in, a, in prayer. It's actually in prayer that we unite ourselves with the purposes of the Redeemer who has come into the world to save sinners. This is the heart of what prayer is for in this text. Jesus taught us to pray, right? And when Jesus taught us to pray, he, he said, pray our Father who is in heaven. The the heart of what prayer is, is to look up to our Father who is in heaven, to look upward. So much of our lives are spent looking inward, looking at circumstances, looking at our own desires, and then pursuing them. Prayer calls us to focus upward, our Father who is in heaven, to bring our thoughts, our cares, our circumstances, and our desires into alignment with the reality of the glory of God and the love of God. Of a father for his people. So I urge you to pray. And in the midst of that mindset, we pray four things. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Now this is the part where if maybe I was a little bit more lazy, I would say, okay, there's the four points of our text this morning. All right, And then I would dream up some way that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving are, are radically different, and here's the way that you should do each one of them. But I think that's actually maybe just a little bit of a lazy way, because I don't think that's actually what Paul's saying here. I don't think he's making a hard distinction between these four ways of praying. I think it's he's basically saying something like, we ought to pray in all the kinds of ways that a person prays. I don't think he's trying to make a four-point sermon out of this. I mean, supplications, what are they? You know, like, you ought to pray in the way where you actually make requests to God. That's what you do when you supplicate. You make a, a specific concern about which you are aware, and you make it known to the Lord in prayer. You ought to supplicate. Make your requests known. You ought to pray. I'm like, supplicate, what's prayers? Well, prayers are broadly, you know, prayers, But also, one of the ways that we can pray is by opening our prayer book that is filled with prayers. Specifically, we can go to the Psalms and and perhaps even other scriptures and we can pray our prayer book before the Lord and pray in light of the community in which we live, we pray the words of the scriptures themselves. This is why it's so important to to have a Bible physically with you. I mean, unless you have all the Psalms memorized, um, then I would recommend maybe having the word with you. So at all times, I urge you to make your prayers known before God. Why not have your prayer book with you to help with that? Third, intercessions. This, this is to pray on behalf of others. Like, that's another way. In all the ways that we are being urged to pray, we can make intercession for those who don't, uh, who, who don't even know their own need you can bring their need before the Father. For those who don't have strength, who are exhausted, who have run out of hope, for those who do not have faith to pray, do you have faith to pray on their behalf? To those who do not yet believe that you would pray that God would answer that greatest need, that God himself would grant faith, to the one that you name before him. To intercede is to bring the name of those that we see and know in our community before God, our creator and redeemer. And then we're told about thanksgivings. Do we have eyes? They're inclined to, to when we're walking around our neighborhoods and when we're driving along the road and we're entering our schools and our workplaces and the various places that God has placed. Do we have eyes to see the kindness of God in our community? Like, do we see goodness and then give thanks to God? Or do we just sort of presume that we deserve it? Or even notice that it's good to begin with? In First Thessalonians, it opens that book in this way. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work and faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he do when he thinks of the Thessalonians? He gives thanks. You can see this in many of the greetings at the beginning of Paul's letters. He begins these letters with the four aspects of prayers, all sort of blending together, making requests for them, offering prayers that often echo other scripture for them, by by making thanksgivings for them and interspersing psalms for them. It's interceding, making requests and giving thanks, all prayer for them. Notice that Paul's instruction in the passage, it's not a generic preaching on prayer, and and this is not a general sermon on prayer. It's, It's a call to prayer specifically in the midst of a community. It's a call for prayer for those who are around us. It's a call that means that we need to intercede, and here's where we get that. Look at the passage again. First of all, I urge you that the prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving, I get the impression he could have gone on, you know? Be made for all people. So if, you, if God tells you to pray, you ought to ask, you know, like for what? And for whom? And the answer that the Spirit inspires for us in this text is for all people. Specifically, the category of people whom the Spirit is directing us to pray in this passage is the all people category. And you're like, man, this is not helping, Pastor. Could you narrow it down just a little? And I would argue, yeah, I mean, that's a lot. I know that we said at the start of the sermon that we're, we call every partner at Cross Point Coast to pray for three people. But the instruction is clear for us in our text this morning that it is a call to pray, an urging to pray for all people. So I would ask you this. Are our hearts open so that we would turn to the Lord in prayer for the community that we interact with among us? I mean, that certainly falls into the category of all people, doesn't it? Prayer for all people, is making supplications or requests for the needs that we see around us. It means praying the prayers of the scriptures for our community. It means being specific about the persons from among whom are all people, right? For the specific persons that the Lord puts before us, and then giving thanks to God for the common grace that he brings into the lives of all of the people in our community. Let me ask you this. We've had a lot of this lately, when it rains, right? It's not supposed to rain this much, but here we are. When it rains, do you give thanks for green lawns in your neighborhood? I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't in the last week at least. When you drop your kids off at school, do you give thanks that God has provided so many educational opportunities right here in our own community? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? When you park your car at work, do you give thanks to God for a flourishing economy right here in our own neighborhood that provides jobs not only for you, but also for your neighbors? God, thank you. I make a prayer for all people, including these who are in this parking lot today. When you go to the grocery store, do you thank God for the abundance of food, the the tastes and all the smells making its way around, that that all these shoppers would have a glimpse at the sovereign providence and divine abundance of God's creative goodness? Man, I want to go to the grocery store so I can pray, (laughs) right? And we get to bump into those things for all people in all the places that we are. And you are being urged this morning in those places to make supplications and prayers and thanksgiving and intercession there. I would argue that we need three things if we would be faithful to the urging of God's word upon us this morning. That If we would go from this place and feel in our gut that there's something that we're supposed to respond to in this instruction. First of all, it's this. We have to have eyes to see our community. You have to look up. We can be so wrapped up in our own lives that we can't see the all people that are around us. You're not going to be faithful to the scripture if you don't see people. How are you gonna pray for them if you don't see them? Our lives easily become unobserved patterns and ruts that we run through. Do you even remember to pray before meals? And do you remember why? Do you have eyes to see how amazing it is that food came to you this morning and it wasn't just you who had something to do with it? But when you pray for the hands that prepared it, it's more than the people who put the the meat and the cheese on the sandwich. It's all the hands that touched it. Do you pray for these? Do you pray when you wake up? And this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And God, God, I'm not the only one that woke up this morning, and a couple people probably in my neighborhood are still sleeping that should be up. God, help them. Help them see that you made this day for them to enjoy. Do you have eyes to see? Do you see those who don't have food? Do you see those who don't have a place to sleep and that were up all night because they lost their job and are struggling in school? Do you do you have eyes to, to lift up your eyes and see the all the people that are around us? That's the first thing. We're not going to be able to hear the urging of this prayer if we don't lift up our eyes from ourselves. The second thing would be this. We have to have hearts that react with compassion. The scripture that I, I was going to go to for this message, and I think it's there, but it's a little bit more narrow, would be Matthew chapter nine, verse 36. And I'm gonna encourage you, go there this week as as God works this urging in you. Go to Matthew chapter nine, verse 36. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When we see need is our response to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. That's what he says in the next bit. Man, I know my response very often when I see a need in my community. I think, oh, man, there's nothing I can do about that. You know? Like, I feel a little bit of, like, guilt. I wouldn't say maybe an edge of compassion that immediately goes to sort of inward-focused guilt. Guilt. And, and I just sort of excuse myself from needing to do anything at all about it. And the fact is, I probably can't go out of my car or into my neighborhood and do something about that particular need in that moment. I'm busy being faithful right here, right now. But I can say, Lord, would you send workers? Now, if that is me, so be it. But I don't think it is right now. Would you send workers into the harvest? You see, instead of a, immediately responding out of guilt with an excuse, I can at least Pray. I can be urged to pray. We need to see the need that is around us and respond. Do we see the need is actually for Jesus? Jesus is that good shepherd for the people without a shepherd. Do we see that the need is for the gospel that he's given for us to proclaim, which is Jesus? Our heart can be filled with pride, it can be filled with judgment our heart can be filled with humility and compassion. When we see the need, is our response compassion on sheep without a shepherd? Third, we have to have minds that turn to the Lord in faith. In almost everything that we encounter in life, like whatever the circumstance is, what, I don't know what your afternoon looks like, I don't know what your week looks like, whatever you encounter in life, Typically, our response is to turn to ourselves, to turn to our, our thinking about the issue, to turn to our emotional response to the circumstance. But if we, what if we had minds that have been urged to pray, and in that way, our first response is to turn to the Lord in prayer, in independence, with faith. We see something difficult. We, do we shake our heads and say, man, that's rough? Do we wag, wag our feathers? Yeah, that's what you get. Do, do we complain or even curse? What in the world? Is that our response? That's, that's not a prayer. <laughs> it's a self-righteous cry. Do we pray for all people? If we pray for our community, we will become accustomed to dependence upon the Lord. Because, man, we're going to run out of ourselves real quick. We don't have what it takes. I don't care if everybody in this room got real faithful, you know? and real hardworking, and really nailed doing everything right this week. We can't meet the need of all the sheep without a shepherd, because we're not the good shepherd. Jesus is. And we will be driven to a need, an urge to prayer, crying out to the Lord, God, all people that are in my community need your provision need your grace rather than my responses of frustration and complaining, prayer. Now look at the passage, As I need more help. This all people thing, it seems like too much, so give me more direction. We're told to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. And then after all people, it says for kings and all who are in high positions. Now that's good. Some of you are accustomed to this. I've heard you. You're very regular in praying for those who are in leadership, and some of you even name them by name. There's such a practicality to this prayer. I want you to see the, the, the argument, the very on-the-ground pragmatism, you might even say, of this prayer. We know that our lives are lived in a world that is ruled by authorities. I mean, you know that, right? You don't get to just do whatever you want, and the, the shape of the world has something to do with with people who are above me who are shaping it, you know? And so, those who confess, I live in a world that has rulers, will I then turn to the supreme, highest authority, the Lord himself, say, highest authority, Lord God, will you exercise your authority over those who are under your authority and over me? and over the all people that are in my community. I think it's so interesting. We don't only pray for their good. God, will you bless this person and this person and this person who are in authority? We pray, God, would they be useful? (laughs) Would they be practically useful? Where do I get that? It's in the next words, right? That we would pray all these supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life. God, I pray that you would answer my prayer for those in governing authority so that we can just have a bit of peace and quiet around here. Right? Just a little bit of peace and quiet. And then it continues to say godly and dignified in every way. It's not just peaceful and quiet. It's the sort of peaceful and quiet lives that governing authorities can effectuate in a community so that we are free to live godly and dignified. The clear goal is not personal peace and, and prosperity. It's how I tend to vote. It's how I tend to pray, is whatever the authorities would give me for my own personal peace and prosperity. But am I considering how would things work so that godliness would be more free to reign, to work its way in the midst of a public peace and quiet? The rationale of this kind of prayer is actually quite simple and, like I said, a bit pragmatic. If the authorities will just leave us alone as we follow after the Lord... Then we will be more free to practice the benefits of the way of the Lord in the midst of the surrounding community, and so will all the people for whom we're praying. But if our way is constantly frustrated, so too will the fruit of that good way be stunted and resisted at every turn. Now, let me be clear it isn't that persecution prevents the believer from the living the life that is both godly and beneficial to the community. That's not true. Actually, we don't have to look any further than like Philippians or 1 Peter or even Revelation to see that those who are suffering are actually often all the more fruitful in making the goodness of God known in their community because the goodness of God is in such contrast to the the failure of peace in the community. But these days, as there's a growing resistance to the gospel in the public square, and I do think that's true, there are those who seem to desire persecution. Like, kind of like a, a bring it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm liking all the resistance. No, that's not how we're being told to pray. It's actually, no, God, God, peace. Let there be peace. Let there be quietness. Let godliness be more free to be reigning in the neighborhood, in the community, in the workplaces, in the schools, in the places of commerce. This is the prayer that we're instructed to uh, for peace and quiet by those who are in authority. Surely it is not good for the soul of one who is in authority to resist gospel peace. So even in your prayer for the one in authority that they would bring peace, you're praying for peace for their own soul to stop resisting the way of the Lord. And it's not good for a community when the way of Christ is resisted by the authority. So pray that the way of God would not be resisted by the authorities. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Well, what do we do? What do we have in this passage so far? Well, we have a call to prayer. We have a call to prayer of supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving. And like I said, I think it just means pray in all the ways that you can imagine would be faithful according to the word to pray. And pray for all people. You're gonna have to lift up your eyes if you're going to see the all people and not just yourself, and maybe your private little household. And particularly, pray for those in authority, because they they kind of affect the all people that you're praying for. And here's what we are told in the next section of the Scripture. We make all these prayers. We make them for all people and all the kings and leaders, for peace and quiet, godliness and dignity. And we're told, verse 3, this is good. This is good. It, it, it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's good. This is good. Well, what's good? Well, I think what, what the, Paul is writing for us here is prayer is good. Like, this is good. Like, if, if I would urge you to pray and then you would respond by praying next week, I could affirm with Paul the scripture and the spirit this is good. This is good. This is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. I would argue that there are three ways that this is pleasing. The first is this. Dependence is pleasing to God. We we never graduate from praying our Father in heaven. You see, there's not going to come a day when we say, hey, You know, I used to call you father, but now we're just kind of like friends now, right? Kind of like equals, you know? Kind of matured, like to that point. Can't you just call me Jeremiah and I can call you, you know, by your name or something? No, he's always our father. This is good. It pleases the Lord for us to take our seat as his children, that we mature as beloved children. The disciples of Jesus Christ are called to faith, And faith that prays with faith and dependence is good. And secondly, goodness pleases the Lord. It it pleases the Lord that we depend on him. And when goodness flourishes in the land, the Lord is pleased. Like that's kind of what he did. He didn't make the world to be broken He made the world to flourish under his good design. And when it does, it hearkens back to the beauty of the design of the creator. And the Lord is pleased. When we pray to God for peace and quiet, we agree with him that shalom is good. It's good when it dwells in the land. Goodness, peace, quiet, biblical godliness, dignity is good. We ought to pray for such things. The, the Lord didn't reveal his commandments and instructions so that we would ignore it, reject it, experience persecution, and endure. <laughs> That's not God's, the beauty of the flourishing of God's design. It's often how we we exist in a moment, but it's not the flourishing of the plan. And so if God would, because goodness and and peace to spring up for which we long and we agree with him that 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 would be pleasing and he brings it we give thanks and we agree with god goodness is you know good and then we confess this right in that next verse it's, it's pleasing to god who desires all to be saved we say god goodness is good and salvation is great There's no goodness that we could imagine that is greater than the salvation brought by our God. We agree with 1 Timothy 1.15 that you, God, have come in the person of Jesus Christ to bring salvation for sinners. That's good. Jesus came to the earth because rebellion and sin of mankind had broken God's good creation, plunged it into darkness, and we can agree, God, that's not good. And we grieve and our hearts well up with compassion. God, we can't live like this any longer. And Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, agrees and he's come to bring light. How does he do this? He does this by a righteous life. And our prayer remembers the righteous life of our God. He alone lived sinless, perfectly righteous before God. And and second, by his sacrificial death, and our prayer agrees with God. God, I I make requests in light of the fact that I know that you've come, and I know that the hope is that my community would not only know peace, would not only know quiet, but would know Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. He took a death that was deserved by the all people that I keep bumping into and myself. And God, I pray that as you took our death, that we would see that we can have life in you, a victorious sort of life, like the sort of life that you secured by your resurrection. We can know that we have life. This is the gospel, and we agree, this is the good, that we are praying that peace and quiet would afford greater opportunity to proclaim. Do you want that for all people in our community? Our prayer for all people agrees with what is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, this scripture says. Prayer is a sign that what pleases the Lord, pleases us. And we want it. We supplicate. We make requests for it. I have just a couple notes before we close. Just a couple maybe nuances and corrections. First of all, all people. Let me suggest that all people means neighbor. As, you know, that's kind of like Jesus talking, right? Who, who am I to love, right? Like your neighbor. And, and by neighbor, he doesn't mean, you know, everybody. No, like if you're walking on a road and there's a guy on the side of the road that recently got beat up, like that guy. That guy's your neighbor. We live in a particularly interesting moment in history. We can know what is happening on the other side of the world, literally, right now as it is happening. You might get a notification during the service about something that happened 4,000 miles away. And, And it's just not true that that was so when this instruction was being given to pray for all people. I would suggest that it's impossible for a finite human to apply this instruction as though it were written in an internet age. But we need to imagine this instruction in the age in which it is written and ask, how do I do this now? So when the Spirit tells us to pray for all people, we ought to hear him very seriously to pray for all people, but we ought to hear that to mean all the people with whom you interact in the community in which you live. Like, start there and see see how that goes for a while. Bump into people and then pray for them. We live in a very connected age. The economies, the politics, the wars on the other side of the world do affect the peace and quiet of our local neighborhoods. It actually does right now, today. And, and as you bump into that reality, you ought to pray. But we ought to live local neighbor lives. So we aren't plunged into national and international news and and don't see the sheep without a shepherd that live literally next door to you because all the news is filling your podcasts and your television screen. Second, I've already kind of hit this one pretty hard, but goodness is good. Like, goodness is good. And we can be so, like, righteous. (laughs) And so, like, stern and serious. Peace and quiet are not the enemies of godliness and a dignified life. No, pride and presumption are the enemies of faith. But goodness, peace, and quiet are the friends of a godly, dignified life. We live in a frenetic culture, and specifically a transient and fast-moving state and region of the world. I was struck when I visited a small town recently over Christmas, and, and I was just struck by how simple and faithful the lives of the people were there. And I thought, I think this might be a little bit of a glimpse of what that peace and quiet, godly and dignified life might look like. And, and that's really hard to do where I live. And so I ought to pray, God, goodness is good. Would you make it more manifest here? In my life and in the lives of the people that I bump into. And third, salvation is the only enduring goodness. You could have 70 years of peace and quiet and perish. Do you know that? Do you know that you could perish in all of your peace and prosperity, but not have life in Christ, your only hope forever? Peace and quiet are not the goal. They are useful means to that glorious eternal shalom for you that, that message is for for some of you right now, and that is the message for all of us for prayer explicitly that if you if you have any peace and quiet in your life you're like. You're preaching to the wrong person right now. But if God would grant you, because you pray for it, any bit of peace and quiet, it is to be leveraged. Leveraged. Not like, yes, right, so nice to get me some peace and quiet. It's not for you, not in this age. That peace and quiet is granted to you for godliness, dignity, for gospel proclamation that all would be saved. Do you leverage any peace and quiet that the God has given? And as anxious as your life may be, hear this, you do have peace and quiet. We live in a particularly prosperous region of the world. A place where most of our cares are manufactured cares. Most of our frenetic, hectic lives are because we chose it. We have peace and prosperity that has not been leveraged For the sake, in prayer and thanksgiving, that all would be saved. As we close, as I just sort of look at our lives, we have have different areas of attention. And this call, this urging, is to interrupt the normal pattern of our lives. We have different things that call for our attention. The first of which is our already busy lives. Isn't your life busy? I mean, it is, at least to some degree, at least everyone that I talk to, I and mean, we need to bump into more people and ask them how their life is going. Our lives are frenetic. And then, on top of your already frenetic lives and household, I say, and you need to mature and carry your Bible everywhere and read it all through like 17 times this year. You're like, my life was full, and now i got to read my whole Bible and carry it everywhere and be, look like a weirdo? Oh, and then you slap me with this one? You're gonna tell me that not only do I have to live my crazy life and read my Bible everywhere that I am, now I have to make disciples everywhere I go and intercede, invest, and invite, and pray for everybody? You're killing me, pastor. The, The purpose is not to add another thing to your already busy lives. The call is a call to prayer that's more than an addition of another thing. It is a reorientation of the first thing. Maybe there's something that needs to be reoriented about so much of the lives that we have chosen. That the reorientation of our life needs to say, somehow I've built a busy life that's a wordless life. Somehow I've built a way of being in my community that is a prayerless way with the people that God has given In my life and the people with whom I interact. And so I urge you to intercede, to supplicate, to pray, to give thanks in the places to where God has placed you. And I pray for you. I pray for us that we would grow up in this together, that God would grant us peace, and He would grant us just a little bit of rest. And if I could just argue, he's probably given it to you this afternoon, if you'd take it. (laughs) That he would grant you rest to pray. Heavenly Father, you are so kind. Your word interrupts the frenetic thrust that we've set our lives upon. Your gospel The gospel in which heaven invades earth in its spinning. Thank you, God, for the interruption of salvation. Thank you, God, for the interruption of peace, the hope of eternal shalom. God, we do pray for all people. We pray for this congregation. We pray for the households. We pray for the children. We pray for the people, the houses that we passed out of our neighborhoods on the way to this gathering. We pray for the lunches that we would go to, whether they're on our back porch, in our kitchens, or in some restaurant in the community. We pray for those that we interact with. We pray for the places of work and play and leisure and education that we go to this week. We pray for the people, the all people that we interact with there. And for those who are in authority in all of these places, so much of the authority is, is untrusted and untrustworthy, is broken, and peace is not defining of what we see there. God, we ask you for quiet, for rest, for a flourishing of your goodness. And if we see any glimpse of it, would we would not be, just simply say, thank you, man, that's great. I get to enjoy myself a little more. That would leverage the little bit of rest that we have that all would be saved. Thank you, Jesus. We give thanks to you that you're already doing this in so many ways. Interrupt our lives to see it. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your good name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.